Section 14 of Married Love. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arielle Lipshaw. Married Love by Marie Stopes. Section 14. Additions to the Sixth Edition. Addition 1 to page 49. A curious rigidity of mental and physical capacity seems to characterize some excellent and well-meaning people, and among those whose marriages unaccountably fail to reach just that height of perfection in a physical sense which they may intellectually desire, are those who are either entirely ignorant that sex union may be accomplished in many various positions, or those who consider any position but the most usual one to be wrong. Yet, curiously enough, it sometimes comes to light that a pair do not even know the usual position, and in my own experience several couples who have failed to have children, or have failed to obtain the complete delight of union, have revealed that the woman did not know that it is not only her arms which should embrace her lover. Consequently, entry was to him both difficult and sometimes impossible. In addition to this, the encouragement of that spontaneous movement which comes so naturally to those who are highly stirred, needs in far too many of our moderns to be cultivated. A pair should, impelled by the great wave of feeling within them, be as pliable as the sea-plants moved by the rushing tides, and they should discover for themselves which of the innumerable possible positions of equilibrium results in the greatest mutual satisfaction. In this matter, as in so many others of the more intimate phases of sex life, there should not harden a routine, but the body should become at the service of intense feeling a keen and pliable instrument. Addition 2 to page 83 It must be remembered that the parallel of the more primitive creatures cannot be pressed too far, because in a thousand ways we highly civilized human beings have developed in fresh directions away from our ancestral habits. This question, of whether or not it is right and wise to have sex unions during pregnancy, is one on which scientific research should be undertaken. Far too few men and women are clean-minded and frank enough to record their feelings in this connection, and far too few medical men delicately sympathetic enough to elicit the facts even from those women who are personally conscious of them. The little evidence which I have acquired through direct personal confidences about this subject points in absolutely conflicting directions, and there is little doubt that in this particular, even more than in so many others, the health, needs, and mental condition of women who are bearing children vary profoundly. From one distinguished medical specialist, I have acquired the interesting suggestion that in one or two cases among his own patients, where the prospective mother had desired unions, and the husband had denied them, thinking it in her interest, the doctor had observed that the children seemed to grow up restless, uncontrollable, and with an unduly marked tendency to self-abuse. On this most suggestive and important idea, I would gladly obtain evidence from parents and the medical profession, for only from a large number of cases can reliable conclusions be drawn. But just as in popular opinion, it is good for the child and the woman to gratify any harmless fancy for food which she may develop, so, in my opinion, it seems probable that any desire for moderate and careful sex union between the prospective mother and the father of the coming child should be gratified in the interests of all three. But this opinion is expressed merely provisionally, 
and largely in response to a number of inquirers who have asked me about this point. Immoderate and excessive sex union must undoubtedly be looked upon as an unfavorable symptom, and a practicing doctor should be consulted about it. A woman who is bearing a child by the man she deeply loves has an intense longing that he should share, so far as is possible, in influencing that child while it is coming, and that he should be as near and as close to it and to her as is possible. The basis of this longing we may well imagine may be not only a tender sentiment of the brain, but may depend on that fine sensual interchange of ultra-microscopic particles which must take place between skin and skin during physical contact, the idea of which is so beautifully foreshadowed in Carpenter's Love's Coming of Age. A woman who is bearing a child should not, indeed she cannot, have the intensest form of muscular orgasm, but this subtler and deeper sweetening and harmonizing union has not only a romantic justification, but will, I think, be proved by science, when science becomes sensitive enough to handle such delicate things, to have a real biochemical basis. As so many people lack a due visualizing imagination, perhaps I should add that the ordinary position of union is not suitable, indeed may be very well most harmful, to a woman during this time, but she and her husband can easily so intertwine themselves that the weight of both is lying upon the bed or upon pillows, and so no pressure falls upon the woman. Addition 3 to page 85. Although it is out of the province of this book to give advice about the more material and better known details of the general management of the health of the prospective mother, yet there are one or two very important points generally overlooked, which profoundly affect both the woman's health and happiness, and may affect also the child. For instance, leading medical experts are in the habit of considering the morning sickness, which is so usual in the early months of pregnancy, as a physiological process, and to look upon it complacently as perfectly normal and to be endured as a matter of course. This marks a deplorably low standard of health, why should this comparatively small but nauseating experience accompany what should be among the most rapturously beautiful months of a woman's life? In my opinion there is no reason for this at all, except that medical men have been blind leaders of the blind, accustomed always to deal with invalids or semi-invalids. They have lost the instinct to demand of humanity a high and buoyant state of health, while women, so harried by the undue drains of unregulated sex experience, with vitality so lowered by civilized life, have seen one another suffering on all sides until they too have lost the racial memory of radiant bodily beauty and health. Here and there an exceptional woman has gone through the months of pregnancy with no handicap, with not even morning sickness. Instead of looking upon her as an enviable exception, as all do now, look upon her as the normal standard which all should attain. One of the aids to attaining this standard for every prospective mother would be the knowledge by all adult women that, directly they know they are bearing a child, they should instantly discard not only all corsets, but all clothes of every kind which are heavy and close, or which have any definite bands or tight fastenings. Specialists are content to say no harm accrues if a woman wears comfortable corsets until the third or fourth month. I denounce this as misleading folly. The sensitiveness to pressure, often unconscious at such a time, is extraordinary, and the penalty of even the lightest pressure is the morning sickness. The standard of clothing should be so light, so loose, that a butterfly could walk upon the bare skin beneath the clothes without breaking its wings. This may seem exaggerated to nearly everyone, but it is a very profound truth. 
Another aid to buoyant health during this time is to add to the diet the largest possible amount of uncooked fruit, particularly oranges, plums, and apples. Various books have been written on the health in pregnancy, though few of these are enlightened, although one must deplore the many mistakes in elementary chemistry which are made therein, by far the best of the books on this subject known to me is Dr. Alice Stockham's Tocology. In this book it is only such comparative trifles as the calling of carbonaceous material carbonates which, though sufficient to prejudice the scientific mind against the rest of her work, does not really affect the profound truth of the gist of her message, a message which was first given to the public by a wise old Englishman long ago. Addition 4 to page 85. Owing partly to the incredible ignorance of our bodily structure, in which it is possible for a grown man or woman not only to enter marriage but to be married for years, sometimes apparently childless unions are not in any sense due to the incapacity of either partner for parenthood, but are due sometimes to trifling impediments which can easily be removed, or to trifling peculiarities of construction which can very simply be overcome. While the great majority of married couples are actually suffering, or would suffer without the exertion of definite control, from too many pregnancies, there are still, particularly in the middle and upper classes, many would-be parents who long for children but seem to be mysteriously deprived of them. Doctors may have examined both the man and the woman, and pronounced them perfectly normal, perfectly healthy, and perfectly capable of having children together, and yet children do not come. Sometimes this is caused by an undue activity of a slightly acid secretion on the part of the woman, a secretion doing her no harm, and of which she is quite unconscious, but which may be sufficient to render the act of sperm impotent. Sometimes, therefore, it is sufficient to ensure conception for the woman to syringe the vagina with a little weak neutralizing solution such as sodium carbonate shortly before sex union. Another cause which sometimes operates against the vital sperm penetrating to the waiting ovum is an excess of mucus at the mouth of the womb. In such a case it is important that a really complete and muscularly energetic orgasm should be achieved by the woman, not before but coincident with or after the sperm has been ejaculated. It is often argued that it makes no difference whether or not the woman has a complete orgasm, for so many cases are recorded in which women who have never experienced an orgasm have had many children, but it is generally forgotten that women are of many different types, and while one type of woman, the very fruitful mother with a wide vagina and but slight internal mucus, may conceive a dozen times without an orgasm, the more highly nervous, equally perfect woman may only conceive on the occasion when she experiences an orgasm whilst the sperm are actually in the vagina. Another slight obstacle to conception on the part of a woman, which is not infrequent, is the position of the mouth of the womb and the relation of the vaginal canal, which may be such that the spermatic fluid tends to be lost without any of it penetrating the orifice of the womb itself. To overcome this, it is often sufficient for the woman to turn over directly the act of union is complete and lie face downwards for a few hours. Without any question, all women have times of greater or less reproductive vitality, but in some women this is less marked than in others, and with some conception may take place at almost any date in the menstrual month, but with other women there is a group of days ranging from three or four to a dozen or more in which conception seems to be impossible, while on the other side of this group of neutral days the days grade upwards towards a date of greater reproductive potency. Therefore a woman and her husband who desire children, but have not after some years of marriage had the good fortune to attain parenthood, 
should choose for their acts of union those days on which conception is most likely. It is generally found that the most certain date for conception is, with very few exceptions, about the last day of the monthly period, or the day or two immediately after it, so that the husband who ardently desires his wife to conceive should, with her consent, concentrate their union so far as possible on such dates. On the other hand, it must not be forgotten that the effect on the whole nervous system of the desire to conceive is very great. A too frantic desire, which leads to too frequently repeated unions, will probably defeat itself, because it is not the mere coalescence of the sperm with the ovum which completes conception, it is also the attachment of that impregnated ovum to the wall of the womb, and intense nervous excitement may prevent that. Indeed, it has been stated by a medical man of considerable weight in the last century, that there are women among those races to whom sex knowledge is not taboo, who can voluntarily control conception at will, and consciously expel an impregnated ovum by mere exercise of nervous force. A woman in modern society, who is in a highly nervous condition, which may find expression in her constant need of cigarettes or excitement, may be, though this is by no means universally true, frequently impregnated, and at the same time continually throwing off the impregnated ovum before the settling down of that ovum, which results in true conception, can take place. If, therefore, the woman who urgently desires to be a mother finds herself continuously smoking, or notes in herself any other indication of a lack of placidity in her nerves, she would do well, not merely to restrict her smoking, which is nothing but a symptom of a deeper need, but she would do well to restore so far as possible a calm poise to her whole system by longer sleep, more country air, plenty of fresh butter, or whatever simple remedy it may be that will supply her nerves with something lacking, and for which she is unconsciously craving. Although to many it may seem incredible, yet it is not so rare as might be supposed that the adult pair may be married for years, and the wife still physically a virgin, owing to neither of the pair knowing that penetration must be effected. Amazing as it may seem, four or five such cases, all of intelligent, apparently average people, have come to my direct knowledge in the course of one year alone. Another cause, less extreme, is due to the woman making full entry difficult or impossible by not taking up a proper position during union. In such cases a knowledge of the true details involved may speedily bring the desired conception. These very simple suggestions are of the kind often overlooked by the medical specialist, to whom a woman goes tremblingly asking if she is abnormally formed in any way, because she does not get the children she so much longs for. Such advice, of course, will apply only to people who are essentially normal and without deformity. For more serious obstructions to parenthood, the pair, and not the woman only, should seek medical advice. End of section 14 End of Married Love by Marie Stopes